Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. Paul Beach will be back next week. In this episode, Jill talks about the types of texture in wine, and we taste two very different wines, so she can demonstrate that. And I talk about three types of musical texture, and we hear music from the Baroque era with Domenico Scarlatti, and then we hear from 20th century composers Bela Bartok, Dmitry Shostakovich, and more. You can check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Hello, I'm Lily Reese. Hi, Jill Mott. Welcome to Take 94. Take 90 million. <laughs> of... Traditions. 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 Yeah. Of uh, leadership roles in both of our fields. Yes. I'm going to talk about conductors that are, the you know, traditionally the person who stands in front of the ensemble and waves their arms. And I'm going to talk about the tradition and the roles of a sommelier, the wine steward that runs around, usually looking very professional and... Flailing bottles about guests, making you spend maybe more than you wanted to. No, just kidding. <laughs> so there you go. So who has an older root word, if I may, of their respective trade? My root word comes from the Middle Ages. Okay. Mine comes from Latin. The actual date of this word, that I don't know. Okay. So I mean, the Middle Ages, that's kind of a broad stroke. It, it very much so of is. time. Well, all right. Well, the fact that I can get this back to times of, like, we're in the, the Roman kingdom, as it were, I'll talk about the history, the etymology yeah. of the word sommelier, because so many people ask me, how do you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. What does it mean? A lot of people, they've seen the documentary Psalm, so they know that a sommelier has to do with wine, but mm-hmm. the Latin root word for sommelier is um, it's there are two theories either sagma or soma, and that means um, the the load that the beasts of burden carry. That's just so uh, dramatic. <laughs> it's just so dramatic. I mean, the whole sommelier profession is a little bit dramatic, and you'll <laughs> know why in a in a handful of minutes. But um, and that could be like myriad reasons, right? There's so mm-hmm. many. Um, tasks that a sommelier has to do. And when we go back to antiquity, they were also in charge of like people's palates basically surrounding drinks and like the health of the beverage, meaning like, is it an old wine? Is it a new wine? What type of beverage it is? What course does it go with? How is it stored? But, you know, we could talk that in contemporary times, it also has to do with the burden that our very finicky guests. So tell me about the history or the etymology of the word conductor. Uh, I believe the Latin is conducere. Okay, which means? Uh, to join together. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. So, you know, and that's kind of makes sense. You yeah, know, they're bringing people together. Bringing people together to make some fine music. 
Yeah. yeah. I was reading about just everything from the profession itself to like the history of the baton. And I was like, good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, you know, that's fun too, because for a long time, it was a big giant staff, which you kind of still see the remnants of when okay. you see like a marching band at a parade or something, you might see the oh yeah the drum major march with a big staff. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's where the history of that comes from, huh? Oh, hmm. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Cool. For sure. All right. Well, should we let's 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 start with some let's start with some conducting. I okay. feel like it's something that a lot of people may not be familiar with. Not only the intricacies of the conductor, but just like, I mean, I don't really think a lot of conductors get credit outside of the classical music community. Yeah. You know, you you some people have heard of a the composer. Or they've heard of this famous cellist, but, right? But could you name a famous conductor? Oh, that I love that. Um, ah, the name of that amazing Finnish guy. His name is, and he's cute. Oh, Esapekka Salonen. Salonen, yes. Yeah, I like him mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. But how many famous ones? I can't right? name many. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, you know, that's why there's seventy million recordings of the Beethoven symphonies or whatever. It's because of the role the conductor has in interpreting that kind of music and what they bring to the table and uh, because they're responsible for so, so much. And, and Bernstein. Now it, I'm just going to try go. to start. Like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm not like, I can't believe I just only <laughs> named one. I have to name a couple. Sorry. Okay, keep no, going. that's good. Uh, yeah, so... Um, uh, they they're just responsible for for a lot of preparation before even the first rehearsal. They need to know the score uh, backwards and forwards. And um, you know, in the quote unquote olden days, like particularly in the Baroque era, if there was a conductor, when was the Baroque era again? Refresh uh, your minds. Good call. The Baroque era was from about the year sixteen hundred until seventeen fifty. And I always say. 1750, because that's when Johann Sebastian Bach died. You're going to hear me say that every time we talk about when was the Baroque era, just so we're kind of clear where that, you know, that he was a Baroque composer and that his death was a big deal. Uh, But in the Baroque era, a lot of times if there was no conductor per se, if there wasn't someone standing up in front of the ensemble without an instrument, that person's role was they were either the violin player, the first violin player would kind of lead the ensemble, which is why that position is still to this day called concert master. Oh, okay. So that's the person who, well, that's a whole other tradition. But uh, they also could have been sitting at the keyboard because in Baroque times, uh, there was a harpsichord around, usually in ensemble music and ensemble playing. And so that person would be leading the ensemble. And a lot of cases, that person was the composer poser in the first place so okay you know very cool so who did you decide to focus on the first story of conducting conductors yeah I mean I just kind of chose um three fun ish examples to talk about today and the first being about a um an Italian born French composer named Jean-Baptiste Lully uh, because Lully died because of his conducting uh, and basically, he was conducting a piece, um, his Te Deum, which is a motet for double chorus and orchestra. And a motet. What's a motet? A motet is basically like a uh, sacred choral work. And they tend to be 
kind of short, and they also often, at least, were unaccompanied, meaning it was just vocalists. Motets were around in the Renaissance era. They're just sacred choral works. Okay. Uh, but by the time Luli got around to it, so Luli was, um, this would have been in the 1670s when this happened, uh, even though I believe his Te Deum had been written maybe the decade b- before that. Uh, but Luli's motet did have orchestra, and it was called a grand motet because okay. of that and because of its length. It was just a little grander, as okay. it were. Uh, so, yeah, so he's conducting his Te Deum, and he had one of those big staffs, and he quite likely was pounding it on the ground to help keep time, and he stabbed himself in the foot with his staff, and that got infected, and the doctors said, we must amputate your foot, and he's like, like hell you will, because <laughs> he loved to dance. Luli was just a brilliant dancer and he wrote brilliant dance music. He worked for Louis the 14th at Versailles. He was like, he, I mean, and Louis the 14th was quite the musician himself too, by the way, the sun King. So that's a fun road to go down someday. But, uh, uh, he just, Luli refused to, to get this uh, foot taken care of. And so he got gangrene and it killed him. So within he died a couple of months. because of his conducting, because, of because his conducting. he smacked himself in the foot but, with his staff. With his staff. Which that same century, the, the 1600s or the 17th century, yeah. um, I was reading was, it's funny that that's the time where it seems like the the staff is getting smaller. Yes. It's, it's getting to, cl- not the baton we have today, but, yeah. and maybe it was around that time, I'm not sure, but it's funny if he was like, nope, sticking with the big staff. Yeah, I know. Yeah, there exactly. you go, buddy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that yeah, worked cause, out. Yeah, because that was kind of the time that things were changing. I mean, by the time, you know, Haydn was conducting in the 1700s, in the later 1700s, he was using a shorter baton kind of thing. So, okay. So, yeah, Luli made some bad choices, and uh, it's unfortunate. Should we listen to a little Te Deum? Te Deum. Let's listen to some of his motet here for double chorus and orchestra. Do we know at what point no. he hit his, he hit his <laughs> leg? Wouldn't that be amazing if we did know that? So why was Li actually conducting Te Deum? What about the two I, worked? I'm, I'm not entirely sure why he was performing that exact piece, but he, but you know, why he chose that piece. But the performance was to celebrate the fact that Louis XIV was recovering from surgery, which I find just a little twisted irony because Louis decided not to have surgery and it totally killed him. Of course, the surgery could have killed him too, I guess, in the 1600s, late 1600s. 87. Water was clean <laughs> then, people. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, it's just a sad little fact about Luli, but um, just delightful uh, composer Jean-Baptiste Luli very much single-handedly created the French Baroque opera style 
as as an ex-Italian, which is really fascinating. Um, well worth listening to more Luli down the down the line. Down the line, yeah, mm-hmm. that sounds. I'll have to try to find a, a Venice parallel. Yes, indeed, we will. Um, or Monsieur Luli. <laughs> um, okay, so because I know that the next uh, reference that you're going to make is around. The 1700s, right? So that yep. seems like a good place for me to jump in because um, my next reference also comes from the 1700s. So we have this Latin word that's like sagma or soma, like I mentioned. And, you know, just to breeze past, you know, you're talking about this kind of Baroque era. Around the same time, there was a profession that was known as like Renaissance butlers, but they had a name, um, copiere. They weren't necessarily called like sumigliere or something that had the sogma as a root word. Okay. But they were they were they had a prominent role in the Italian court and they were endowed with the rigid way to serve drinks. Okay. And the the detailed way in which they were served, how they were stored, the standards, and they would actually go and taste these wines they'd put like a ducal they'd wax they'd put a ducal stamp on them and say you know this is reserved for this purpose this is reserved for that purpose so we know that in greek times in roman times we have these people that were in charge of symposiums renaissance time you got us up to the 1700s and in the 1700s we actually see this word sumigliere come into the mix. Okay. Um, and their their actual full name was called Sumigliere di Bocca e di Corte, which is like the person that's in charge of your mouth and the court. <laughs> and so it was their job to basically mimic everything I just mentioned about okay. the copiere, but they had a, a, a title, okay. um, which is pretty cool. Um, and yeah. I don't know at the time, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of research and hadn't, haven't found out like nowadays, we have all these guilds where you can go get a certification to say you're a certified sommelier. I don't know if there was some sort of certification or if you needed to prove how you would prove your weight, you know, yeah, yeah. via your palate. Yeah. Because um, when did that all start, the certification? I know for sure that there are various guilds and, and stuff around in the 80s. Um, the court of masters, like if you're a master sommelier, those are um, one that's probably the most well-known. I don't know if it's the most renowned, but it's the most well-known. Um, and they started in the 70s. Um, so, yeah. Hmm. I have so many questions. Should I ask them now? I mean, m- might as well. Okay. So, because, all right, with natural wine, that's a whole different, like, they don't teach you about that, right? The, you mean, like, Master sommeliers, like when, when you're I'm learning to do the exams and stuff. Correct, um, and that's a really good question. Um, do you mind if we touch on that at the end? Not at all. Only because only because we're going to talk about the relevance of the sommelier. I think, and okay. and I I really think that sommeliers, the position itself is obviously very relevant, and I think that learning the basics and going through and learning all the detail is very relevant. Sure, but then. How do you apply that to now? It's sort of like if you're going through college and you're learning about uh, medieval art, but you don't take into account anything that was discovered after 1900, yeah, you know, or something like that. You'd yeah. be you'd be working with less information than you could to make all the best decisions or assessments you need to make. Right. 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 So, okay. Um, 
So that gets us through to the 1700s. Do you want to okay. 1800s us? Yes, because um, we're going to talk about Felix Mendelssohn, who's one of my personal faves from the Romantic era. Uh, Mendelssohn was just a... Tell me what the Romantic era is. The Romantic era starts in the early, early, early 1800s because it kind of happens on the middle of Beethoven's compositional life. And uh, so we can kind of start to get really technical about it in the early 1800s. And then it ends you know, right around, you know, early 1900s, late 1800s, really. I mean, it kind of definitely bled into the 19th and into the 1900s. And there were, you know, post-romantics and all that kind of stuff. Um, and this is about the time, right, when people actually start to, like, dedicate a conductor, right? Like, that person is the conductor, yes. right? Okay. Yeah. Um, and there's all kinds of really famous and lovely relationships between conductors and violinists or conductors and composers. And um, also there starts to become the conductor-composer, like someone like Mendelssohn, who was very good at both. And Mendelssohn was another one of those hardcore child prodigies. You know, by the time he's 20, the whole country's talking about him kind of thing. Um, and really even sooner than that, uh, because he had an older sister who was a very fa famous pianist, his uh, sister Fanny Mendelssohn, who also was a composer. And there's quite a bit of um, speculation and I think proof that Mendelssohn kind of, I don't think stole some of her pieces, but he definitely attached his name so that they could get published kind of thing. Okay. Um, that's going off on a different <laughs> tangent, but Mendelssohn's great. Um, he didn't live very long, which is unfortunate, but when he was 15 years old, he had, uh, he came from a musical family and he had, uh, families on his mother's side that were, uh, very dedicated to the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, where in the 1800s, nobody was really paying attention to Bach. Pianists were studying his music. They were practicing with his music, but they were practicing with his instructional music, his uh, well-tempered clavier, for example, and his preludes and fugues and his um, chorales and things like that. But his music wasn't really getting performed, Johann Sebastian Bach, because by now he's been dead about 100 years. And uh, Mendelssohn's mother's mother gave him, uh, for his 15th birthday, a copied version of a piece by Johann Sebastian Bach called The St. Matthew Passion. And the pa the St. Matthew Passion is this massive uh, oratorio, which is basically, you. Could, I mean, when I think of oratorio, I think of an opera in a church where nobody moves around, okay? So it's like you've got the orchestra, you've got an organist playing, you've got like harpsichord, full orchestra, there's two choirs maybe, and it's telling this whole story, but there's no staging of it, right? So okay. there's there's nobody running around in costumes and stuff, but there's soloists even okay. that help to tell the story of, in this particular instance, this passion is about the death of Christ. So Mendelssohn gets gifted this score when he's 15 years old from his grandma, and he's like, I'm going to mount a performance of this. And he tells a buddy of his, and they both like literally like, become obsessed with mounting a performance of the St. Matthew Passion. And five years later, when he's 20 years old, he conducts the St. Matthew Passion. And he conducts it in Berlin, uh, which is the first time it's ever been heard outside of Leipzig. Leipzig being the home of the Goza. 
for those of you who like Goza beers. Oh, I've had a Goza beer. It's spelled funny too, by the way. Uh, well, you're thinking of a goose. Oh. Goza. Is that just G-O-S-E? Yeah. Okay. Got a little coriander, a little sea salt, but that's for another show. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so keep talking. Sorry. Uh, no, that's that's all. Just uh, Mendelssohn. 20 years old. He was 20 years old. And when I think about the scope of St. Matthew Passion, it's it's huge, a very long work. And again, two choirs, an orchestra, keyboardists, soloists. You know, nowadays you hear uh, usually typically perform with like a boys choir and full adult choruses. Um, back in the day, there weren't women singers, so it would have been all men and boys. So why did you choose Mendelssohn? Because him conducting that when he was 20 years old woke everyone up to the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. And more so than what people were familiar with in terms of his instructional keyboard writings. So it was a big deal and it's never gone away. And, you know, I mean, because that piece alone is considered one of the, like, best pieces of music ever written. So this piece that we're about to listen to is... Yeah. Maybe solely responsible for all of our enjoying of Bach in the 21st century. Yeah. It could, it very well could be. Yeah. Word. Okay. Let's listen. Yeah. Let's listen to some. This is just the opening of the Passion because it's super long. He, uh, Bach wrote at least one other Passion we have in entirety, which is the St. John's Passion. And that one, ooh, so good. They're, I mean, they're all so good. But in any event, yeah, here's. Some of the Matthew passion. Did he perform the whole thing? Did no. he do this? Okay, I was like, good God. Yeah, uh, this, this is actually pretty funny because, like, I I was reading, um, oh, there was an article, maybe even in The Guardian several years back, of a, on, an, on an anniversary of Box, uh, uh, where a, an ensemble and a choir, they were going to stage the version that, stage quote, I shouldn't say that because nothing is staged, but they were going to uh, perform the version that Mendelssohn performed and they were a little worried about it because he changed a lot. He he cut, it's a long piece, so he did some cuts. And although it wasn't too unusual for really long concerts to happen back then, so that wasn't a, a thing. I He made some cuts. He, he reharmonized some things. He kind of like updated some things, which is hilarious because I, I don't think, you know, if Mendelssohn had lived to 80 years old and you asked him like, would you do that again? He might be like, no, no. Probably, but I probably wouldn't. But yeah, so he, he made some changes, but people just people were just blown away at the scope of it. Mendelssohn 
was known for, just to bring it back to conducting and less about Bach here, uh, Mendelssohn was known for being a really good conductor, and Mendelssohn felt very passionately about conducting the works of his contemporaries and introducing new music to the public and uh, and th- things like that. And he was just a solid, a solid fella. You know, he was a good, good guy. Felix. Felix Mendelssohn. Gotta love yep. some Felix. Yep. <laughs> well, so you're at the 1800s, which brings me to the 1800s. Excellent. So translated from Sumigliere, yes. we get Saumalie. Okay. And from Saumalie, we get Sommelier, or S-O-M-M-E-L-I-E-R, Sommelier. Okay. And we fast forward to present day, and a sommelier is someone that they're in charge of ordering wine. Mm-hmm. They're in charge of pricing wine. They're in charge of, obviously, they have to know how to taste wine and knowing where wine comes from, a lot about the winemaking process, and, of course, how to knowing how to sell wine and training wine. And that's and like to tell you what it tastes good with, especially. Yeah, how, how to pair it with food, great point. How to yeah. pair it with food. And so... That's ba- that's like in a nutshell. That's the responsibility of a sommelier. Yeah. What where I think it's kind of at a crossroads at this point in our history in the wine world is that you know you have all these certification boards, and when you look online, there are like at least ten that you can f- you know very quickly look up and okay. find a curriculum and how much it costs and how long it's going to take you, and you know. Some people would say that some are better than others, but you can also go online and take a test and go get your sommelier certificate in like 10 minutes for $100 or something. You know, it's wow. a, it's a little bit more elaborate than that, sure. but you don't have to you don't have to do an online like I'm tasting and I'm having that kind of exam, right? Okay. So in the end you have sort of janky certification systems, really in-depth certification systems, and then you've got people that have been in wine for 50 years. Mhm. They know wine a hundred times better than I do, and I'm a certified sommelier. They've mm-hmm. just been around longer, and yet they're not certified. So some people yeah. would say, well, they're not a sommelier. And I'm like, well, they've been performing duties of a fucking sommelier longer <laughs> than you've been alive. So <laughs> why are they not a sommelier? And I yeah. I think there's a lot of importance now in this part of you know the 2000s to go for your sommelier certificate. And I'm never going to tell someone that they shouldn't do something that's going to make them study. Yeah. I mean, that's going to make you more respectful, hopefully, of wine. You're going to learn a ton, but you're also going to learn a curriculum. Yep. You're going to learn the way you need to not only taste wine, which is like medium plus acid, medium minus tannin, long finish, light plus body. Well, how <laughs> are you going to talk to guests like that? That's, yeah, exactly. That's, but, exactly. but then also, also what we're tasting so, for example, I brought a wine for us to taste today and to talk a little bit about the sommelier profession as I'm, as I'm talking about the act of opening it and how many steps there are, right? But we're talking about, um, you know, when we talk about the validity of the sommelier profession, I think it's, it's like the certified thing. We're, we're sort of going into a realm now, and this is coming from a certified sommelier, like, mm-hmm. right? So it took me like three years to get all my training and pass all my exams. And I feel like I would do it again in a heartbeat at the same time. It, it, and it helps to have all this base knowledge because now when we're in this world of natural wine mm-hmm. where everything's all tricked out and crazy and volatile acidity and all this up the wazoo, yeah. Yeah. it's good to know what the differences in Grand Cru Burgundies taste like so you can have that to yeah. then make decisions about what's going on now. 
because then you're not just loosey-goosey firing all like this is cool and that's cool and I'm going to buy this because this is cool and that's cool. Right, right. But what we're learning about a lot of those Grand Cru Burgundies, not all of them, and certain Bordeaux's and certain Sancerre's and important wine regions in the world are they are predict. There's a reason those wines are predictable. They're made right. with certain yeasts. They're made. They're, the textbook says you need to make it this way, and it has to pass a tasting panel and taste that way, so that you and me and all the sommeliers in the world can all agree on A is a Sancerre, B is a Puy Fumé, C is, and we can all get there together because the textbook helps us get there. Yeah. Which, if it's all contrived. If it's all, if it's not really all born out of a natural process and spontaneity, then how really close to terroir being a sense of place, tipicite, tasting where it comes from. So that's that's where I'm a little bit miffed right now in the world of certification. Mm-hmm, when people mm-hmm. ask me, I say, of course you should go for your certification because you're going to study and you're going to learn a ton. Yes. It's going to give you base knowledge. But they're teaching you a curriculum that is not really based off of right now yep. what's happening in wine. Right now we're at a really crucial, pinnacle, awesome time yeah. where the verbiage is changing and how wine is understood is changing and pardon the soapbox, but so no, love it. I, don't know. I yeah. think it's a really cool time. Yeah. So let's ch- <laughs> thirty-six minutes without wine. Whoa! <laughs> no, we'll pour the... some wine. Thank you. So, so this appellation is Cotou du Genois, and it's just north of, um, I believe it's just north of Sancerre. So we're in the far eastern regions of the Loire Valley, and this is a producer. His name is in M- France, and that's like in the northwest, sort of. Yes. Okay. Nice work, ER. Yep. Um, so Mathieu Cost, um, he's making a wine called MC2 Nature. It's a 2014. It's about 50-50 Gamay Pinot Noir. And man, is it funky. He's doing, I think <laughs> that this doesn't see um, any sulfur, but they may be a scant amount. And then he does do um, the majority of his aging in barrel and stainless steel. So you've got this like, it smells like, I said, when I first smelled it, I was like, it smells like a goat's ass. I mean, it literally smells. It smells like a barn. The business end of a barn. The business end of a barn. And then it also smells what we call in the the business, it smells reductive, um, which means like a little bit like, in not a pejorative sense, like a little bit matchsticky, a little bit rotten eggs. And that can be if the wine is made in an absence of oxygen, like they're trying so hard to protect it um, that the wine doesn't respire. And just like humans that we need to respire, we need mm-hmm. to get a breath of fresh air now and then. Wine needs oxygen as much as people don't think it does. Yeah. And so if you do it in that kind of environment, that's not to say he meant for this to happen. But yeah. that can happen if you're too right. protective. Um, but considered considered by many a natural wine. It's unfiltered. It's crazy. But this, how would you, I mean, I put this in front of an exam and everybody would fail. Well, you shouldn't fail because it's made with nothing in it other than grape juice and a touch of sulfur. Right. This is what you should be able to nail. Whoa. I'm going to be, I'm going to so get like. You think? I don't think. No, but to scores and pours. To scores and pours. I happen to think this is quite a delicious red. And that's because it's slightly acidic and there's like no tannin. Which is weird because yeah. I think it's very acidic and it is. 
you're right though the tannins are a bit milder they're, so mild and they're they're kind of they're kind of like they are a little bit loud at the get-go mm-hmm. like when you switch around but they're a little bit away. like wow and then yeah and that could be a definitely a result of pinot noir is not a not a very tannic grape varietal okay but um is it i mean thin it, can, skin? it can be Yes, it is thin skin. Nice work. <laughs> um, but it also is, you know, at this point, it's a five-year-old wine. So mm-hmm. the tannins would have gone down. Okay. And this region isn't really too well-known for wines that are like, hey, cellar those for all times kind of thing. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, we can we can talk more about sommelier and steps of service. But Oh, that's what I was just going to ask you. Oh, go ahead. About all the steps of service to opening a bottle of wine. Mm. You want to save that for later? No, that's fine. Because so I, I want to know. Because it's not just steps of service for wine. It's like you have steps of service for every beverage out there. It's true. I brought So I brought my curriculum for when I was not only going through um, the certification guild that I went through, but also when I was instructing for them their higher diploma level courses. And it's like service ideology, key physical components – for example, I noticed that I had a couple um, hangnails, and I was like, oh, that wouldn't pass. Really? Right now? Well, I mean, just like bad height, like yeah. bad fingernails. It's yeah. not cool. Don't paint your nails. Don't wear this kind of jewelry, you know, the whole lot. No so, perfume and stuff either. Oh, no perfume for sure. Um, so you got all those things. So for, let's just say, for example, there is decanting service for wine. So you're actually putting wine into another vessel. To, in front of someone. In front of someone to okay. aerate it. What's step 13? Step 13 is prime decanter with the neutral wine and then pour out into one of the tasting glasses, set used glass aside. Wow. Go again. Yeah. <laughs> what's, uh, what's number two? What's number two? Introduce self without fanfare and offer assistance to hosts using his or her name if known. Well, then what's number one? I'm just going to fast forward to... go ahead. I'm going to fast forward to (laughs) number 30. Begin pouring with the oldest female and for all females. Now, this is back in the earlier part of last decade, but still... Yeah. You know, nowadays that's a that's a thing. Like, okay, so are we still doing that? We're not doing mm-hmm. that. We're just going clockwise with the host last mm-hmm. kind of thing. If I'm the oldest female, I'm for it. I'll just tell you. I mean, at the table, why not? Yeah. Okay, so begin by pouring with the oldest female and for all females, then proceed to the oldest male and continue for all males and finally the host. The host is to be served last regardless of sex. I don't know. There's just like, it's so great. I mean, like just how ridiculous. And when Mm -hmm. you look at like, so all of these have no fewer than 27 steps. Amazing. And it's how to open sparkling wine, how to open regular wine. Because there's not supposed to be a big pop, is there? There's not supposed to be a big pop in sparkling wine. How to decant wine, how to decant port or something with a lot of sediment. How to open wine with burning tongs. If you're, you know, you got a ton of sediment in the and the cork part, and you can't, you're going to, you know that the cork is going to crumble kind of, there's like so many different things. So what for you personally was the most challenging part of all of that? Oh, for sure. The essay writing, because the essay writing was a four hour exam. What are you writing essays about? I mean, wine and stuff, but like what? History, like tell us about the Methuen Treaty and how it affected Bordeaux. (laughs) 
Okay. Okay, and so you have to go through that whole thing. Yeah. You have a food and wine tasting menu that you have to write out. Okay. Why this goes with this, why it yeah. doesn't go with that. You can't use champagne for everything because people are like, I'm just going to use shit. Some really smart person is like, I'm just going to pair champagne with everything. And they were like, God, they're right. That does. You can't do that. Uh, which is funny. Um, you have, in, in my guild, I thought it was funny when I watched some and they had like a handful of wines because when I went through the sommelier guild I went through, I had 22 blind wines that I had to nail down to grape varietal and region and subregion. And and how did you do? Uh, I don't want to toot my... I want to toot get my 95%. Nice. But then we had to do, we had multiple choice. We had, um, there was like an interview thing that we had to do. We had to do a huge project. And so, I don't know, it's like it was ridiculous. It's a ridiculous two days of stress that just, you know, just so you can walk around with a little pen and piece of paper that says you know something about wine. Mm -hmm. There's so many people that know things about wine that didn't go through that, you know? Yes. It's interesting. Well, yes. I mean, you can say that about every profession. I mean, there are probably people out there that would make quite fine conductors, to be honest. I mean, I uh, uh, it's funny in this other uh, program that I do, I was talking with a, a composer who had gone to conduct uh, some of his own music, and we were just t- joking about how terrifying of an experience conducting can be because you're just up there. <laughs> and you're like, let me wave my arms about and go. And um, there are some fun things I wanted to mention about conducting. Uh, one thing is that when it comes to conducting string players versus wind players, mm. players that have to breathe to play, there's oh. an issue because string players don't have to breathe to play. Well, uh, they you should. Yeah, There's they all kind of proper breathing, breathing techniques. Doesn't. Yes, but you don't need the breath to make the instrument sound. So uh, one of the reasons some people get confused about conducting is it looks like the conductor is always uh, ahead of the orchestra or just not on time with the orchestra. And oh, that's okay. because there's a delay, right? If I tell you go, you're going to go after I say the word go. You're not going to go when I say go. Yeah. It's the same kind of thing, you know, but it also has to do with breathing. Yeah. And so uh, a lot of times uh, a conductor to to start a piece will give a big upbeat of some sort where everybody breathes together and then they go. Cool. So, yeah. I didn't mean to kind of veer back into conducting, but No, it but I, I love natural. that because it seems, you know, it actually speaks a little bit to my next point, which it'd be fun to end with some music. So I think this is a great place to kind of keep going on the track of like what what does being a sommelier mean now, whether you're certified or not? Because I think I'm thankful that every night that I go to work, I get to go to work in jeans and like maybe not tennies, but comfortable, slick-looking boots, you mm-hmm. know, and I can use the verbiage I want to use. If you wanted to dress me up and put my pin on, I'll go do that, <laughs> and I'll sell you a $10,000 bottle of champagne just like I'll sell you this bottle of Mateu cost for 60 bucks or 40 yeah. bucks or whatever it costs in a restaurant. So I just, I think that what I love about the sommelier profession nowadays is that a lot of really cool cats out there that are, you know, professional, certified, or performing the role of a sommelier is that they want to know their stuff, but they also just want it to be approachable. And I mm-hmm. think they don't want it to be hoity-toity. Um, there are people, of course, that go into it for that. But I think the more we can make 
wine accessible is like the sommelier is doing their job by making people feel really important Mm -hmm. or by making people just feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah. So if you're going to, you know, bring an an open bottle out for someone, like how – how much are you adhering to those 29 steps now? Like if you're in your- Four. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No, no, I'm just kidding. I mean, I do, that's, that's, um, thanks for asking that because I do, I really do take pride in the fact that I know my shit. And so whether I'm like doing inventory, which most people don't like to do inventory. And every time I have to go count bottles, I'm like, I get to look at wine. I get to think about wine. I get to be like, oh, I forgot about that. I can't wait to pull that out for someone this tonight or this week. Yeah. And then, yeah, when I'm on the floor, I do think about, you know, I do show people the label and I do repeat the name of the wine, maybe not to the degree that they expect you to. I, I, there are some things that I'll do. I, I won't drip, you know. I do tend yeah. to work clockwise. I do tend to clear my refuse. Don't leave the cork. Don't leave all that stuff. Don't leave yeah. the... You know, the foil and all that. Just grab, you know. But refuse. (laughs) (laughs) So, smelling the cork is bullshit. Such bullshit. And the taste of wine. Thanks for bringing that up, ER. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so when I'm opening the wine for you, listener, to taste. First of all, look at the cork. It's fun. It's cool. Some people put cool information. A friend of mine puts his phone number on the cork. I mean, that's cool, you know, until he got real famous and decided to eliminate that. (laughs) He was getting texts from all kinds of cuties, and he was like, this is not a good idea. No. Or maybe it is. Yeah. Anyway, um, but so, you know, the cork is a sign of health in a wine, like how old is the wine? Has the wine seeped out? But it could be a perfectly good wine, even if the cork is a little bit crumbly or who knows what. Mm-hmm. Don't smell the cork because you're not going to know if the wine is healthy by smelling the cork. All you smell, you smell the, is cork that smells like wine. Smell the goddamn wine. I'm pouring you a taste of wine, so <laughs> yeah. smell that. Don't smell the cork. That is from a day where a lot of faulty wine happened because of corks. And that's still, they say 10% of cases these days. I don't think it's that high anymore. But so that's one ritual. The second ritual, I'm not pouring you a half an ounce taste to see if you like it. You ordered it. You're buying it. So (laughs) if you really don't like it, say you don't like it. And I'll say, I'll get you something else. And I will try to cordially acknowledge the fact in my own mind that you don't know why I'm doing this. I will take away the wine and I'll go sell it to someone who will happily drink it if you don't like it. But basically that ritual exists because I'm pouring you a half ounce for you to tell me, hey, this wine is healthy. Mm -hmm. It's not corked. It doesn't have too much volatile acidity. It's not faulty in any way. Pour up. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, this wine is corked or it has this problem. It's cooked. Maybe it was in a warm cellar, the terrible storage or something. Send it back. But if I don't like a wine, I let the person know I don't like it. Mm-hmm. But if I see it on my tab, I, I, then I order something else. Mm-hmm. And if I see it on my tab, that's just the way wine works. Or okay. if the sommelier is astute enough, they will recognize I don't like it by my body language. Mm-hmm. They'll make that right. But just to know that that's not why the taste is poured is to say, 
hey, yes or no. It's like you've already said yes. You've said you've pulled the trigger when you when that yeah. when that person leaves your table. Yeah. You've pulled the trigger. <laughs> Long winded way of saying that. Yeah. So. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. God, and see, this is we need wine for this next tune because I poured. Well, I listened to this with a dear, dear friend of mine, and we both had like physical reactions. Yeah. To this next piece. This is a toughie, and uh, this is a toughie because of its title, and it didn't start with this title, so it's always been a question about this piece is, would this piece, first of all, have the fame it has if the title hadn't been changed? Second of all, uh, would it have the impact that it has if the title hadn't been changed? So the original title of this piece was 8 minutes and 37 seconds, and uh, written by a Polish... Uh, composer who's still alive named Krzysztof Penderecki. He was born in 1933, so he's old. And he wrote this piece in 1960. Wrote this piece for 52 string instruments, which is, I wouldn't say a highly unusual spread of instruments for a big orchestra. 52? I mean, 24 violins is a lot of violins. That's a lot of violins. And the 24 violins are split into four sections. There's 10 violas. That's fairly normal. Uh, They're split into two sections, 10 cellos into two groups, and eight basses into two sections. Eight basses. Eight basses. Sounds like the happiest dream of my life, actually. (laughs) That's a large romantic-sized orchestra, for sure. Uh, But it's just those strings. There's no percussion, no wind instruments. So just violin, viola, cello, bass. And... Penderecki was experimenting with a type of music called sonorism where he was experimenting with clusters of sound. And so he wrote this piece. He had to come up with his own way of notating this piece so that he could indicate that the players had some choices they could make, um, which is known as aleatoric music. It's some of that is left up to chance or chance music. Okay, so these are all 20th century like terms. Like ad libbing, basically, they're kind of like yeah, but it's pretty restricted too. It's like play a ad-libbing. really high note and hold it for a long time. So it's like the terroir of conventional wine. Yeah, but it's I mean, written, it's like it's like you can you can make your wine yeah. speak of place, but it has to look like this. Yeah, okay. yeah. So it's kind of it's kind of a restricted kind yes. of improvisation, okay. yeah, or a directed type of improvisation. Perfect. And where the it's not so much improv as it is the players are given some choices uh, uh, in terms of like how wide their vibrato might be, and vibrato is that shaky sound at the end of a note that gives it kind of expression and warmth, as it were. So uh, Penderecki came up with his own notation at the front of the score. There's uh, there's a legend, so you can see, oh, well, if there's a triangle where the point is at the top, that means play a really high note. If there's a squiggly stem on the note head, that means to play with really wide vibrato. Crazy. Uh, you know, stuff like that. Dynamics were indicated in certain ways with his notation. Um, so am I hearing that you chose him because of this annotated Yes. Just like a whole new way to think about... The way this music was presented on the page 
well, it was presented in lengths of time. So that's why it was originally named eight minutes, 37 seconds. So it would be like, it would have like, you know, violas play your, a, a really low note. Well, that's kind of a silly instrument to pick to say that, but violins play a really high note for eight seconds. And the conductor in this instance is the one keeping the time, like <laughs> literal seconds of time. Whoa. And so cueing things based off of how long, how much time has passed and, and in that way. So instead of a conductor in this instance in front of 52 string instruments indicating a beat, they're really more just cueing and saying, okay, we're at this part now, we're at this part now, cellos, you do this now, everybody, we're going to do this now, but it's more like pointing and maybe showing some like intensity level with hands yep. and whatnot rather than But you're not, he's, beating he or she's not keeping a, beat. a yeah. whoa. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty intense. And so what, what the, the lead that's been buried is what is the piece actually called now? And the piece <laughs> now is called Threnody to the Victims of Hiroshima. You can also find it as Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima. And it's uh, uh, very difficult to listen to in that context. It's pretty much eight minutes and 37 seconds of anguish. It yeah. does sound like kind of just something very terror-ridden. Yes. And I wanted to say it, it mirrors the wine we're drinking. But we're drinking wine, which is never yeah. a terror-filled. <laughs> right, well, it right. actually is a terror-filled situation if you get the wrong wine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this, this to me is like a very shrieky, very yeah. high-pitched, high-toned. Yep. Um, and, and had a, a tremendous impact on uh, the way music is composed to be scary after that. Because wasn't hasn't it been used in a few films? And oh, it's this been and used that? in all kinds of stuff. Actually, one of the newest. Uh, uses of it is absolutely tremendous was um, what David Lynch did with it in his relaunch of Twin Peaks. Oh. So if you're, I mean, for those of you who know David Lynch, you know that he's a brilliant musician in his own right. And so he he did a pretty amazing uh, thing with that, visually speaking, um, in the Twin Peaks relaunch or I don't, reboot. It's, it wasn't a reboot, I guess, Twin Peaks continuation that happened a year or two ago. Um, so that's well worth looking up on YouTube if you can find that. When I, with um, with the composer, I, I read that he said something along the lines of, so pardon me if I'm quoting it incorrectly, but that this is like his attempt, he was like developing a new musical language. Like it literally mm -hmm. was a, a different way to write and then hence conduct and then hence perform. experience well yeah. i think i think he was really uh and so many of the 20th century composers who were experimenting they were experimenting uh some of them not all of them but many of them were experimenting almost on behalf of the listener to to be like what how would you feel if music sounded this way or what if music sounded like this? And that's kind of what Penderecki was exploring with this sonorism is like, what will the reaction of the audience be like if I just toss these clusters of sound at them? Okay, you know what's kind of awesome about that? What? Our natural winemakers nowadays, a lot of them are like, I'm making wines. 
that I want to drink. It's yes. like the opposite. <laughs> yes. And then they're making the stuff that's making a lot of people's heads turn. Like, well, wait a minute. That's mm-hmm. not correct. Or, wow, that's so cool because it's yeah. so different. So, mm-hmm. I don't yeah. Know, just, uh, yeah, it's a, there's some interesting parallels there for sure because when I think about, you know, oh, I'm making music that I want to make, I think of, you know, there are a lot of composers that fall into that category. And I and I feel like Penderecki did that f- definitely I mean, he was still young. He was in his 20s when he wrote it, um, uh, but also very much thinking about the impact on the listener, whereas, you know, if winemakers are like, I'm, fuck it, I'm making the wine I want to make, then they maybe aren't really thinking about the listener, as you might call them, you know, but but yeah. Should we get shrieky? So, I mean, I recommend if you want to listen to this piece, Watch the watch an animated score version so you can kind of understand that there is uh, there is a method to it. And it's not as random as it might sound. It's very organized and deliberate and intentional and well thought out. And I'm glad that when I was listening to it um, over the weekend, I'm glad that Emily mentioned that. She's like, you know, look online, find that. Because if I would have listened to it on its own, I would have made it through about four minutes, probably gone and thrown up in the bathroom and come back. Like I was literally like, I was kind of making my stomach churn, but it it was just due to the title. Well, yeah, maybe, but it's just like what that sound does. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at something that is explicatory of what's going on, or at least you might not be able to decipher it, but you can tell that there's like certain tricks that he's, or or certain meanings that he's used this, do this then, which is really quite cool. So thanks for that guidance, yep. Ms. Reese. Yes. That's why they pay me the big bucks. It's worth saying there's also a lot of manipulation that Penderecki asks the instrumentalist to do in terms of like how they're hitting their strings or how the, like tapping the body of the instrument, all kinds of other other thing, other extra musical things you can do with instruments beyond what they're made for. What I love about this is this is almost actually a parallel to natural wine. And when I say that, I mean, me listening to this is not, and natural wine is obviously super enjoyable, so I'll, but listening to this is a chore. Like it's, Mm. I I enjoy it, but I'm Hmm. listening to it for a purpose. I'm not listening to it in the shower. Right. Or I'm not, I'm actively, why am I listening to this? And with, With natural wine, I think there are wines that are like chuggable and easy drinking and super fun, which is like the majority of awesomely made natural wine. And then there are those yeah. that are like difficult, and I don't mean faulty. I mean difficult because they do really challenge what we know about wine. Um, and those, I think, I don't know, I just thought of that as like, this is very studious. And I think there's yep. a lot of parts of natural wine nowadays that are also much more fun to drink than maybe listen to. <laughs> yeah. But they're like 
they have this element to them that you do need to really be a student of, I, I feel like, natural wine to to try to get to that place where we can all understand each other and have a conversation because right now we're not, a lot of people aren't there. Right. A lot of, we're not, a lot of people aren't on the same page about what things mean. I didn't mean to like interrupt. Not at all. No, that's, I'm. Audible Threnities. <sighs> that's a tough one. Yep. So how do you feel about that piece? Uh, Just pers- personally for yeah, you. Yeah. I mean, I, it, you know, it, it changed the world in a lot of ways. Uh, it was, you know, as I mentioned, it was very, it, it still is, remains to be very influential in terms of, you know, what makes music scary or what sounds scary. I know, but what do you think about it? What do I think about it? I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing. I can't listen to it. <laughs> yeah. I, I've heard it. I know what it sounds like. I know uh, what it's about. Um, I, I find it incredibly difficult to listen to the whole thing, even though it's eight minutes, you know, it's eight and a half minutes. Uh, it's a toughie. Yeah. <laughs> but it's brilliant and Penderecki was is brilliant and yeah well I urge you to go on Spotify or however you listen to music Apple mm-hmm. Music however you get your music though to go online and actually like look up a conductor and instead of listening to well today I'm going to listen to only Debussy or I'm mm-hmm. only going to listen to Bach maybe pick a conductor and listen to that conductor and then the next day Find a conductor that find a different conductor that maybe mm-hmm. has done some of those similar pieces and see how different. We did an episode, a handful of episodes back, that it showcased obviously there were differences in eras, like of time that they were performed, but the yeah. conducting was quite different. Yeah. Um, so it speaks to that a little bit. Feel free to listen to that episode. Look at pitching ourselves in our own <laughs> podcast. And next time you're in a restaurant with a decent wine list, ask to meet the sommelier and ask him or her, uh, a handful of questions maybe about why they, what's their favorite wine on the list, or which is, I always think is like a stupid question, but maybe you <laughs> learn more about that person or uh-huh. what's something, a better question, what is something they're really excited about on the list right now? Yeah. Why, why are they choosing this region or this type of wine to highlight? And you'll get, um, I don't know, it's fun to meet the person behind the wine list because then all of a sudden the wine list starts to make a lot more sense. Like I can, when I go to restaurants in town, I'm like here in Minneapolis, I'm like, oh, that's that person's wine list. And it just like (laughs) visually you read it and you're just like, that's that person, you know, which is really pretty awesome. Love that. Well, Joe Mott, I am so thankful that you're a sommelier. Thankful that I can share the wealth. Cheers. To scores and pours. Scores and pours. Thank you for listening to episode 21 of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. And we're on Instagram at scoresandpours. That's managed by Jill, and it's great. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. We would appreciate that very much. We're grateful for those who are already doing so. 
edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pores is a production of June Media, Inc.